Thanks for joining us on Switzer Investing. I'm Paul Rickard, filling in for Peter Switzer. On tonight's show, Shane Oliver, the Chief Economist and uh, Head of Investment Strategy at the AMP, has a look back at the reporting season to see what we can uh, glean from that, but also talks about uh, the current debate going on in the US between the Fed, how tough is it going to be, and what does it mean for the market. And surprisingly, well not surprised if you know Shane, he's just a touch bullish. He's not saying that the market bottomed in June, but uh, he's feeling fairly comfortable and sees the, the risk of recession, particularly in Australia, as less than 30%. To close out the show, we'll have Arjun Palawal from an Investor Kit, and another one who's a bit bullish, this time on the property market. Now we've seen some pretty ordinary data come out from uh, CoreLogic about the ongoing downtrend, but Arjun says that the underlying factors are pretty strong and that should actually support the market, particularly in some of those, uh, those hot spots. But to kick off today's show, let me share with you my thoughts about um, the market, particularly the outlook in September. And I do that by, by having a look back first at what's happened in August. Today, I wanna to look at the outlook for the market in September. What's in store? But as always, let's have a quick refresh on what happened in August. Look, a, a second positive month for the ASX, despite some negative pressures coming out of the United States. The market up 0.6% in price terms, 1.2% uh, when you add dividends. For a year-to-date negative position of down 6.2 on the ASX 200, uh, and a negative 3.6% when uh, dividends are factored in. Interesting, the top part of the market, that's the top 20 stocks still doing better. They're only down 1% year-to-date. Compare that to the so-called mid-cap 50, that stock's numbered 51 to 100 by market capitalization, down about 5.5%. And the bottom end of the market is doing even worse. Looking at the industry sector, still the clear standout is the energy sector, up 7.8% again in August to be up 43.7%. So that's companies of the likes of mainly like Woodside, but also you can throw in Santos and some other uh, energy majors in that league. On the negative side, uh, the IT sector, although it's only weights at 3% of the index, is down 27.7% year to date. In August, most sectors were either small positive, small negative. The biggest sector by market weighting, the financial sector lost 0.6% to be only down 2.1% year to date. But really, it's a tail of sort of energy on the top end, IT at the other end, and the rest of the market sort of not doing a lot. I think one of the standouts from August as well was the real estate sector, really because of the pressure of higher interest rates, down 3.2% and down 16.7% year to date. And on the upside, look, the communications services sector, mainly due to the likes of, uh, of Telstra, but also companies like uh, REA uh, up 2.6% uh, um, in the month of August. Okay. That's enough about uh, talking about the past. Let's look to the future. Now, we all know that September, uh, historically, particularly September and October are the scariest months in the market. Uh, and any of the data will show that they're historically done less well than other months. That doesn't mean they always lose money. In fact, the statistics say they will more often go up than, than go down. But there've been a lot of big falls in September and October. So the market tends to get just a little more nervous. Now, in the United States, it continues to be this ongoing battle between inflation, interest rates and recession. How hard does the US uh, Federal Reserve go to actually combat inflation and does it put the economy into recession and what that means for the stock market? 
Now, in the last week or so of August, we saw the market, particularly after the uh, Fed governor made a statement, turn around from it really a summertime rally, you could you'd call it, uh, and then really start to fret again about the fact that the Fed looks like it'll go at least three quarters of a percent uh, when it meets in September 20th of the 21st. Plus, there could be more in short-term increase, increases. The curve inverted even further, so the two-year rates went up, the 10-year rates didn't go up as much, so the gap between the two-year bond and the 10-year bond uh, got, got wider. That's often considered to be a predictor of recession. So you've got to say there is some probability of recession looming in the United States. But inflation, at least in August, was better, and hopefully we'll start to see a better finger in, uh, in September as well. In Australia, it's going to be a little quieter month because we've got through reporting season, which generally uh, wasn't too bad for the market. The Reserve Bank meets on, on, on Tuesday. Uh, national counts is a big number out at the end of the month. I don't think we're going to see the June quarter in a recession, but uh, there'll be focus on that on September 29. And also for some of the uh, stocks involved in sectors like healthcare and education and other sectors where the government gets involved, uh, don't forget that the, the Labor's first budget is due out in October 25. So we may see uh, some things coming out there. Overall, I think September is going to be a tricky month for the market. It certainly wants to see uh, confirmation from the action of central banks. If inflation is better when the September data comes out in the States, the market's going to like that. It wants to see you know, a stable or perhaps a falling oil price, and it wants to get a good sense that the, that the central banks aren't going to take it too far. In other words, they're going to be a bit nuanced. And my take was that was what the, the Federal Reserve Governor was actually saying the other day, uh, we're actually going to be more nuanced. Locally, though, you've got to say reporting season was a positive. So September, October looked like rather tricky months, but I would say, you know, I'd be surprised if we retest uh, the June low. Looking at the charts, and we're going to take the lead from the US, you can see that all, despite the rally uh, in, in July and August, the US market really hasn't broke its long-term uh, trend at the moment. That's still uh, in, a, in, a, in a negative sense because on that graph at least, the, uh, uh, the shorter-term moving averages, the 30-day moving average, is actually below the 300-day moving average, which is below the S&P 500. So the market's still looking like they want to go south. The question is, will they retest the June lows? My hunch is if they do, we're not going to get much lower. If anything, I think when we get through September, October, we're going to be looking at higher prices overall. I'm joined by Shane Oliver, the Chief Economist and Head of Investment Strategy at the AMP. Shane, welcome to the program. Thanks, Paul. Great to be here. Yeah, look, let me start off by just talking about uh, what we've seen in the last, well, I guess since last Friday, our, our time with uh, the US Federal Reserve and an apparent sort of hardening about the, the willingness to, infly, to fight inflation and, and send interest rates up. What do you make of that and how the markets reacted to uh, that news? But to be honest with you, I wasn't particularly surprised by what uh, Jerome Powell said at Jackson Hole. Uh, I, I think markets, or the share markets anyway, sort of got ahead of themselves. I think they were hoping for some sort of dovish pivot from the Fed. 
uh, and we didn't really get that. We, we got a collection of phrases that he's used in the past, but the combination of them was more on the hawkish side. In, in other words, continuing mm -hmm. with what they've been doing, the need to get inflation down, uh, the likelihood that, that, that there'll be some pain along the way. I mean, it didn't particularly surprise me, and I don't think it particularly surprised uh, the bond markets, but it obviously did surprise equity markets, which had rallied very hard from the June lows, and that had left share markets vulnerable. So now share markets have gone back to, yet again, worrying about how high the Fed will go on interest rates, how high other central banks will tighten, and uh, you know, whether we'll have a recession and how se severe that recession will be. And of course, this has come at a time when ECB um, officials have also been hawkish. And of course, overnight, we got some more high inflation numbers or surprising on the upside in Europe. So it, 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 it's still this messy picture of um, worries about inflation, worries about recession and worries about how high interest rates will go. I, I mean, there is a bit of light at the end of the tunnel and there has been for a few months now, and that is uh, forward-looking indicators mm -hmm. for inflation in the US have rolled over. We've probably mm -hmm. seen the peak in US inflation, but I guess the Fed says, well, you know, inflation may have peaked, but it's still too high, so therefore we've still got some more work to do. So there is, um, we have seen the US yield curve, I guess, flatten a little bit. The, the two-year rate has gone up a bit and the 10-year rate has probably, I won't say it's edged down, but at least that margin's widened a little bit. A lot of people you know, like to say, oh, that's a forerunner of a recession in the States. Um, what do you say to that and what, what probability do you assign to the chance of a recession in the US? I, I think in the US it's 50-50. The 10-year what they call the gap between the 10-year bond yield and the two-year bond yield has inverted. It's been inverted for a, a little while now, a couple of months, I think. Um, the gap between the 10-year and the Fed funds rate has not yet inverted. Um, historically, you don't have recessions unless that gap inverts. And we're not there yet, um, but it probably will invert if the Fed keeps uh, raising interest rates at this rate. Um, I mean, history of these things is that uh, inverted yield curves, that's where short-term rates are higher than long-term rates, uh, do tend to lead recessions. Uh, that's why markets are worried about it. Um, but by the same token, it's not a perfect guide. You do get some false messages sometimes. And uh, the, the gap between the inversion and recession could be as long as 18 months. In other words, you know, we could still be waiting out to the second half of next year or late next year before we get the recession. I mean, I don't regard the two quarters of negative growth we saw in the US earlier this year as, as a recession. Uh, you know, income growth was still strong, jobs market was still strong. Uh, so I don't think uh, that'll be defined as a recession, but that, that recession risk is still significant out there next year, probably in the second half of next year. So that's clearly something to keep an eye on. And I'd, I'd rate that risk as 50-50. Perhaps that the biggest issue now, given that markets are already still down, way down from their highs, and we did see a 24% fall in US share market into June, um, the bigger issue is not so much whether we're going to have a recession, because you could argue that's already factored into share markets, but whether it's a deep one or a mild one. Um, if it's a deep one, yes, then we've got a lot more downside to share markets, but if it's a relatively mild and brief one, as I think is more likely, uh, then share markets, yes, may come back down and go below their lows, but we won't have a lot more downside. And that, I, I either lend to the view that we'll manage to just avoid a recession, or if we do have one, it'll be a relatively mild one, because we don't have the imbalances going into this recession that we've had in the past. Yeah, sure, inflation's a problem, but the level of household debt in the US is well down, and we haven't seen 
um, overinvestment, uh, which normally precedes recessions as well. So that's why I think if you do have a recession, it'll be a mild one. So I won't, I won't put you on the spot and ask you whether you, th we, you think that we bottom back in, uh, in the 17th or 18th of June, but it sounds like you are sort of suggesting it's going to be a, a mild recession in the US, if one at all. What about Australia? Is it differently placed to the States, notwithstanding that, you know, when the US, you know, you know, that phrase they're going, you know, they, they sneeze, we catch the cold. I mean, vice versa. So how's Australia positioned for this, uh, for any sort of discussion about a recession oh. in the US? It's a good question. I think the risk of recession here is 30%. It's a lot less than in the US. That old saying, if, if the US sneezes, we get a cold, applied up until the early 90s. I mean, they had recessions and we had deeper ones in the 70s, 80s and 90s. But ever since then, they've had recessions, quite a few of them. Uh, and we haven't. You know, the tech wreck and the GFC were classic examples of that. Recessions we managed to avoid. Um, so, and our central bank has a better track record. I mean, we mm -hmm. all, everyone seems to be uh, mm -hmm. criticising the Reserve Bank lately, mainly given its uh, comment about the uh, 20, no rate hike until 2024. But if you go back through time, we've seen lots of tightening cycles, four tightening cycles uh, before this one, uh, starting in mid-1994, uh, 2002, 1999, and also uh, 2009. And those tightening cycles, um, and also 2002, I think I mentioned in there, those tightening cycles didn't result in recessions in Australia. So there is a bit of a track record in Australia, a better track record in Australia of getting inflation under control without having to have a recession. So I think the risk here is much lower than it is in the US. It's a 30% chance of recession. You know, it's, it's significant, mm -hmm. you can't ignore it. Um, but I don't think we'll go into recession. The other point to note is that our inflation rate is not as high in, as in the US. The US has got up to 9%. They've got wages growth, depending on which measure you look at, around 5 or 6%. We've got inflation here probably going up to 7%, got more upside, but we've got wages growth currently 2.5%, maybe on its way to 3.5%, but still well below that in the US, which means the Reserve Bank won't have to raise interest rates as much uh, to control inflationary expectations in Australia. Um, which is another reason why I think uh, you know, the odds of avoiding recession in Australia are much higher. Well, thinking with that sort of slightly more positive tone, we've just uh, finished reporting season uh, and you keep a pretty close eye on, uh, on all the numbers. So over to you, what's the overall summary of reporting season and uh, what have we learned in terms of, of you know, the outlook for company profits going forward? Look, I, I think it wasn't fantastic in the sense that some of my charts that track it have been starting to slow, but by the same token, it was it was okay. It was in some ways you'd say it's pretty good. You know, the last financial year we saw earnings growth of around almost 22%. Uh, and if you think about it, a year ago we were stuck in a lockdown in New South Wales and Victoria. Uh, we had the Omicron disruptions. We've had worker shortages. We've had surges in. Um, uh, the price of basic inputs to what companies do, uh, disruptions to demand and so on. And yet they've been able to generate pretty good earnings growth through the last reporting season. So that's the good news. Um, and, you know, the, the odds are we're probably going to see continued earnings growth this financial year, but not as much as it was last financial year. So I guess that's the bad news. Um, looking beneath the numbers, I mean, I saw something like 35% of companies surprised on the upside which mm -hmm. is a ratio of three to two yeah. uh, in terms of companies surprising on the downside, which is good. Um, but that upside surprise has been diminishing. 
Uh, and we've also seen a slowing in the number of companies reporting profits up on a year ago and a slowing in the number of companies reporting dividends up on a year ago. So basically, earnings growth was very strong through the last financial year, but it is starting to slow down. And consistent with that, we've seen analysts revise down their earnings growth expectations for this financial year to around 6.5% from around, I think about 8% at the start of the reporting season. So that's probably the biggest downer in all of this, but it's it, 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 it's not so bad as to say, well, you know, sell shares, panic, all that sort of stuff. Um, I, I thought overall the earnings reporting season here helped support the market. You were wondering, well, why did shares rally yep. over the last few weeks until the little yep. pick up lately? Um, it was because of those earnings numbers, which were overall supportive, similar story to what we saw in the US through the June quarter earnings reporting season, but you just got to bear in mind, we are going to see much slower uh, profit growth in this financial year compared to last financial year. And what about the uh, the tone of the reports? I was expecting, um, you know, companies to be uh, pretty conservative in terms of their outlook statements, uh, particularly given the unknowns about, you know, the economy and recession risk and inflation and, you know, supply chain pressures in terms of input prices. It didn't quite get a sense that they were as conservative and as uh, cautious as I'd expected. I wondered whether there's any data to support that or you, you agree with, uh, with, with that statement? Oh, no, I agree with that. The companies, I mean, there's a lot of companies that didn't offer any outlook statements, but those that did, you know, yeah, there were some negatives in there and some companies will clearly struggle, but it, it seems as if companies have managed through this difficult period reasonably well. Uh, and that, that's why there wasn't a, a sense of doom and gloom uh, on the part of corporate Australia. Um, yeah, things will slow down, but they're managing these disruptions you know, fairly well. I mean, that's evident in numbers themselves. Margins have held up. I mean, there are some challenges coming forward because uh, wage pressures will continue to increase and uh, higher interest rates will mean less demand. Mm -hmm. Um, but I didn't get the impression from companies that they thought that was going to cause a, a collapse in their profits, um, which I think is a good sign. You know, we, yeah, we're going to see a slowing. It's inevitable after the big, big recovery in profits and the economy from the lockdowns. Um, so it's inevitable we're going to see a slowing, but there's nothing in there pointing to, to a crash in company profits, um, just a slowing in growth. And if that's the case, um, yes, we'll see some volatility in share markets or continuing <laughs> like we have, uh, given the global concerns, given the Reserve Bank still raising interest rates, um, but we're not talking about a, a crash scenario here. I mean, things could worsen, but mm -hmm. um, as things stand at present, mm -hmm. you know, we're looking at, yeah, potentially more downside, maybe a retest of the lows we saw in June could go a bit below that, but not a, um, not a whole new leg down uh, in, in shares like we saw at the time of the GFC, for example. So putting that together, 6.5% profit growth, low risk of recession in Australia, maybe higher interest rates, a little bit of nervousness overseas. Sounds like you're, uh, from a strategic point of view, uh, you see the market as reasonably well positioned. Is, uh, I don't want to uh, uh, you know, word mail you or wordsmith you, but uh, is that a fair synopsis of, uh, of the uh, Shane Oliver view on the stock market at the moment? Yeah, uh, yeah. short-term nervousness. <laughs> We could uh, have some rough months. Uh, we are in September now. Yep. Uh, September is known for volatility, uh, as is October. Uh, but I think beyond that, 
Uh, I think later in the year we'll get more clarity that central banks, or at least the Fed, the, Fed's the, the Fed is the one that really counts globally because it led the way on the way up, it's going to lead the way um, going forward. Uh, we'll get more clarity that uh, I think they're getting closer to, to slowing down the process of hiking. Um, similarly, in Australia, we'll get more clarity on that front as well. And I think this, this combination of better valuations, you know, you're talking about PEs now 15 times, not 18 or, or 20 times, um, uh, some settling in bond yields, um, managing to avoid a recession, that suggests the share market should do reasonably well on a 12-month basis, even though um, I still have those concerns about the next couple of months. Well, we'll leave so it there. wouldn't necessarily be piling <laughs> in there, but you might be looking for opportunities that would be thrown up over the next couple of months. Well, we almost sort of, I think we got a fairly a positive assessment from you, Shane. So uh, I don't want to verbal you, but we'll leave it there. That's uh, Shane Oliver, the uh, Head of Investment Strategy and Chief Economist uh, with the AMP. Well, despite what you might read in the mainstream press, one property expert says the property market is very strong. In fact, headed a press release saying that Australia's housing outlook is strong despite lack of nationwide blanket capital growth. That's uh, Arjun Paliwal. He's the head of research and the founder of Investor Kit. He joins me now. Arjun, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me on, my friend. So everything I read in terms of the mainstream uh, press is that the property market's in a lot of trouble and uh, there's going to be a lot of mortgage stress. But you say it's actually strong. So um, maybe you could just share your thinking for, you know, are you, why are you different than everyone else's uh, feeling so negative on the market? I think the core part is uh, not falling in love with any one thing, my friend. It's really about a holistic overview of housing fundamentals. Uh, we categorize fundamentals across three core categories, underlying demand, housing supply, and confidence. Mm -hmm. And after breaking this down, we came up with what we felt were the core indicators of fundamentals. And we found 25. Now of the 25, if you were to make it an exam or some sort of test, you'd say that anything under 14, you're probably flunking your exams, right? And as a result, you're probably flunking your housing fundamentals or performance for housing. We sit today at a level that's 17 of 25 when it comes to either strong or very strong fundamentals, 18 when you include the balanced. So I guess this is a core thing to say that really the picture isn't as bad as what everyone might be saying. Okay, so you've got 18 out of 25 fundamentals are either strong or balanced. Um, how does that compare to say uh, six months ago or 12 months ago? That's a great question because there is a change in trends. This time last year, or this time early, earlier this year, um, we did count that there were 22 of 25 fundamentals, either strong, very strong. And this is uh, important to note that there has been a slide down. But when we think of what's really been the slide down, it has been number one, borrowing capacity, which is reduced in line with the changes of interest rates. Number two, in my opinion, not so much the actual change of interest rates, it's A, the rapid change of them, and then B, the lack of certainty on how far they go in comparison to previous representation by the RBA versus what actually happened. So I think that's the, the second core part. Uh, the third part is due to rapid price growth again and again and again, our pre-pandemic 
uh, price to income ratio sat at about 6.8 and now they sit at about 8.5. Now, in isolation, none of these indicators are clear dropping off or absolute loss of uh, you know housing fundamental strength, but they are contributing to the slowdown because they move from that point of 22 fundamentals down to 17. And some other things I haven't quite mentioned are the consumer sentiment index. And something lastly to throw in there is the media cycle tracking. So this is something very unique to yeah. us. Um, we had our research team sit down and review the last 90 days of journalism in Australia amongst our top three media journalists in terms of by volume or market share uh, in Australia when it comes to property you know, release. And we tracked that only 24.7% were in the positive category of releases over the last 90 days. So that does definitely show that sentiment from a perspective of media cycle, consumer sentiment index, and some of those other parts were the shifting fundamentals from last year versus now. Yeah, look, I have to add uh, to that. Uh, look, my experience is that the media is uh, uh, wrong a had a 10 times, and that's because and what they do know is the scary headlines sell uh, eyeballs and, and newspapers. So the story is always on the negative side. Look, let's, um, let's come to the, uh, just before we go off the fundamentals, they're obviously a mixture of demand and supply. I presume all the supply factors are still pretty strong because there isn't much new supply being built, is there? You're very, very much correct there. So this is a core part around some of the fundamentals that do remain in a very strong position. Talking about supply, we looked at this in three different parts. Mm -hmm. One was assets for sale, so for sale listings. This is still down 31.9% compared to pre-COVID levels, but it's also down 33.6% compared to five years ago. If that doesn't demonstrate a severe housing shortage, yeah. I don't know what will. Now, this is the core part of what makes some of the cities move and diverge in different performances because we are seeing a greater slowdown and decline in the likes of some of our bigger capitals. That is because their five-year averages of supply for sale is actually at a balanced level. It's just that the rest of Australia is in such a shortage of supply, which is why we are still at 31.9% lower than pre-COVID for sale listings. If we move on to rental vacancy rates, we're at the lowest level since 2007. Vacancy rates as of June ending data are at 1.2% nationwide. They're even lower as we stretch the data out to July, August. Yeah, Rising so, rents are definitely a core part there as well. Yeah, so when you look around and you, you look at what's happening in, in, in rental returns and, and uh, rental vacancy rates are so low, you hear all the stories about uh, how long it's taking to get anything built. And we know a lot of builders, uh, you know, are facing rising costs and can't get tradespeople. And then, you know, at some stage, they're gonna turn the immigration tap on again. <laughs> you know, it's sort of hard, to, I think, you know, just looking around at the anecdotal data, uh, despite interest rates going up, and it's obviously harder for people to, people can't borrow as much. It's hard to get too bearish on the market. So I, I'm not surprised that you're, there hasn't been that big a shift in some of your factors over those 12 months. Well, I'm seeing that the 17 of 25 that we're at now, to the point that you raise around the borders, 
I'm predicting that our fundamentals will actually rise from 17 of 25 to 19 wow. of 25. And the reason why is the two fundamentals that we scored as weak in Australia were international visitors down 65% with May ending data going back from, you know, compared to May 2019 pre-COVID. So that bounce back is imminent and very likely to happen soon. The net overseas migration is also ranked as a weak fundamental by us because when we consider how low it was, some of the lowest since, you know, on record since World War One due to the pandemic and, and the big lockdowns. So that too, over time, as visa processing backlogs, as normality occurs, as rules between countries change and people start to move from dipping toes in the water to actually uh, getting fully in the, the traveling around the globe and shifting lives, that's two fundamentals out of the 25 that we've ranked as weak that will bounce back. So uh, it, the position is still definitely healthy, especially we add into some of the uh, unmentioned parts now with, with regards to unemployment rates, job advertisements, infrastructure investments, just to name a few. Okay, let's move on to uh, some of the areas that you think uh, potentially have the best prospects going forward. Very much a bias towards some of the smaller states and regional areas and, and some sort of provincial cities. So let me just start with a couple that you've, uh, you've mentioned. One is Greater Adelaide. Now, that's obviously a capital city, but that's, not in a, that's, not, that's on the outskirts of Adelaide. What, just sort of go through the drivers for, for Greater Adelaide. Yeah, so when we came up with these list of cities, um, what we wanted to take into account was a mix of lead and lag indicators. Mm -hmm. And uh, taking into account Adelaide as one call out, the first thing we looked at was putting all these indicators together and calling it market pressure. Adelaide's asking prices have still been increasing. They actually increased for the quarter at just under 2%. So annualizing that in a period where we're seeing nationwide slowdown uh, is still a healthy number. Uh, total listings have also still dropped 4% over the quarter. So just when we thought listings were getting better, they weren't really, and Adelaide isn't one example. Listings still remain between 30 and 45% in many parts of Adelaide's below pre-pandemic levels. But we have to admit, after years of great growth, sales volumes are starting to flatten out a little bit, and vendor discounting rates have bounced from the absolute bottom. Un Unrealistic though is one core part, which is how much growth can keep going at these levels because that can't keep happening. It just doesn't happen when we look at our long term. But in terms of pressure overall in Adelaide from low supply, a very strong economy, and we're extremely undersupplied rental market, the pressure still remains high. Yeah. Okay. And then another area was, was, was Darwin uh, or Greater Darwin, I think you described it as. Look, for a lot of investors, that's uh, that's a long way away. I mean, um, so how do you sort of reconcile, you know, most people aren't going to get on a plane to go and visit property to think about Greater Darwin. So is that realistic? a realistic option for investors in, say, Sydney or Melbourne or Brisbane? Yeah, so this particular list, when we included cities like Darwin, um, we again just came back to that pressure point. It isn't so much a list to say, hey, these cities uh, are just booming with investment prospect and they are definitely ripe for investing. They're just showing signs that, hey, whilst the country goes through an overall blanket shift in demand, yep. they still remain extremely insulated because of a few pressure data points. So the example here is that quarterly asking prices for Darwin have actually risen by 3.8%, which annualized is a double digit rate of growth. Um, what has been something that's very unique to Darwin and quite interesting actually, is that 
sales listings have continued rising in Darwin, even as the sales volumes have come up as well, which is a sign that maybe people seeing this growth in Darwin are using it as an opportunity to quickly get out because they might not have seen many years of great growth in the past. So they're using it as a way to, you know, have held it long enough. I see this as a great opportunity to get out because we did notice something unique about Darwin that whilst its prices were rising, its sales volumes were healthy. We were also seeing listings pick up. So it showed, showed a clear sign of people getting in and out, something unique to it. Yeah, and I suppose there are a lot of factors in places like Darwin because of, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, very, there's an orientation around defence and government and uh, other key industries. So I guess you've got to have a view about, um, yeah, what's going to happen in some of those things. Is that, that, that's just a bit of caution there before you, where everyone races off and thinks about Darwin, right? Yeah, correct. I think this is a, a short-term pressure overview, which shows that it's well-placed on that angle. However, from an investment perspective, definitely more broad approach, more broad thinking, macro, also from their economics as to whether it's comfortable for them or not. Yeah. And the last one I want to pick on is, is Launceston, a particular favourite city of mine. Um, so, uh, look, Hobart's, we know, has had a great boom. People have been saying Hobart's got too hot. Um, is that just a spread of people sort of moving out of Hobart or looking for perhaps somewhere a little bit cheaper, two-hour commute roughly, potentially, or is that just a function of, uh, you know, a great place to live with great amenities around it? Yeah, this first concept you mentioned, which is something interesting that many people do fall guilty of, is something too hot for too long. Um, it's been very hard to figure out when that ending point would be of a cycle like Hobart, regional Tasmania, because these areas have kept on, you know, keeping on since early 2016. So this is a very, very interesting to see that we're now six years into some of the cycle or growth cycle for many cities. And this is quite rare when it comes to Australian property, you know, even the likes of Sydney, Melbourne and others saw an extended, you know, three to five or four to six years of growth. But these cities don't seem to have any, any steam that's majorly, you know, falling off. Listings in Launceston are down 16% over the last quarter and they remain well below peak levels. Uh, sales volumes have stabilized at a slightly lower level and vendor discounting is a little bit higher, but they're still at very, very strong levels. Now we've seen over 100% price growth in Launceston over a 10 year average. And the majority of that came in over the last five or six years. Um, the rental listing is still extremely low vacancy rates remain at one percent and investors can still see a healthy rental yield and that's because rents have risen over 64 percent over the last decade sitting with a healthy yield of 4.3 percent as long as these supply conditions remain in the likes of hobart and launceston and even out to bernie and devonport this growth cycle that they're in doesn't seem to be falling off anytime soon uh, although rates of growth have most definitely slowed and the building approval pipeline seems to be, you know, getting a lot of heat into it, which means that the pressure eventually needs to come off, especially after levels of price growth like this. But they've been remarkable examples of uh, absolute outperformance in comparison to the rest of the country over the last six years. Thanks for joining us on Switzer. Thank you, my friend. Cheers. Well, great to see someone who's so, so positive about the market. Uh, because we do get so much negativity and sometimes the fundamentals just speak for themselves. That was Arjun Paliwal. He's the uh, founder and head of research at InvestorKit. They're a buyer's agent. That's the show for tonight. For more insights, head to switzerreport.com.au. 
I'm Paul Rickard, filling in for Peter Switzer.